A lot of the films we discuss on Friendly Fire are set specifically in or are closely related to or about the fallout from the Vietnam War. And one curious aspect of American exceptionalism is the belief that the United States is the only country to have, quote, their Vietnam. Yes, didn't you know it is we, the USA, the only country in the world that has the sheer GDP, the manpower, and the gluttonous political appetite for that very special kind of war, the quagmire. Giggity. But it only takes flipping through the pages of a high school level history textbook, as long as that book is distributed in a well-funded school district without a Texas-style school board stacked with revisionist history know-nothings, to see that these kind of country-to-country rock fights are everywhere. The 2000s has the United States and Afghanistan and Iraq. The 90s had also the United States and Iraq. In the 80s, Russia had Afghanistan. In the 70s, we had Vietnam. In the 60s, Israel had and continues to have Palestine. And in the 50s, there was the Algerian War, a battle for independence between Algeria's National Liberation Front and their colonizers from France inspired in some degree by the Vietnamese struggle for independence from France. Now, this conflict was a difficult one for me to learn about because I'm such a Francophile that the suggestion that the French could do any wrong is hard for me to cope with. But I think that's the real strength of a project like Friendly Fire. It can lead me to see that it's possible for even the French to do bad things, as unlikely as that may seem. Anyway, the war between France and Algeria had been preordained back in the 1800s with the original French invasion of Algeria in 1830. Their scorched earth policy that included massacres, mass rapes, and other atrocities is just something you don't forget about as a country, and Algerians did not. The consequence may have been the creation of a French military colony there, but French citizenship among the native Algerians was fairly unpopular due to their Muslim religious beliefs clashing with the French insistence on them renouncing their religious laws. There's nothing that stokes nationalism quite like an attack on your people, and what a resistance needs more than anything to succeed is organization. Many came and went, but in the decades leading up to the French-Algerian War, the FLN was that for Algerians who desired independence from France by fomenting anti-colonialist sentiment into the rejection of France's unfair and unrepresentative government, eventually plunging the country into a hornet's nest of guerrilla warfare, maquis fighting, and torture. All of these are depicted in Outside the Law, a film that introduces us to three kinds of Algerians, each with varying levels of commitment to the idea. Complicating things is that they're brothers. The film definitely takes a side, and it's their side shining a very unflattering light on the idea that France was comfortable celebrating throwing the Nazis out of France one year and also thinking everything was hunky-dory in Algeria the next. Sacre bleu. It's a film that is moody and dangerous and above all familiar because the struggle for independence isn't just the American way. In this case, it's also the Algerian way. In the 2010 Rashid Bouchereb-directed Battle for Algerian Independence film, Outside the Law. Uh-huh. 
Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast whose hosts you might think are alive, but you're wrong. We died a long time ago. Let them kill us. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. This mom is so badass. She's the most badass mom, I think, of any war film we've seen. She has one of the most badass faces of anybody we've seen in this whole project. She really earns that badassedness by being forcibly expelled from her home and then watching yeah. her husband and daughters massacred and then living in a shack in a ghetto in France for yeah. 10 years. In a film that depicts massacre and depicts her own children using garrets like every 15 minutes, she's the biggest badass. She really is yeah. pretty tough, yeah. Man. A face tattoos add time- a toughness. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they sure do, yeah. I, I was waiting for her to start getting teardrops added to that. <laughs> I read a New York Times review that that really took this film to task for its opening moment as being like unfairly uh, biasing against the French, but this is like a real thing that really happened to people. I mean, the film spans like almost forty years, right? It starts in the twenties and ends in the sixties, and uh, and yeah, like the 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 beginning is about this this young family being. I mean, it's it's kind of weird because they're, they're like very old people, but they have very young children, which... Hey, <laughs> hey good for them. Hey, I resemble that remark. <laughs> you, st- you just take a big step back there, It's partner. important to keep your love life smoldering. Also, you know what? I'm, I'm not judging it as a life way. I'm merely pointing out that like it might be historically inaccurate. Hey, no, living in the desert ages a brother. Okay. You know what I'm saying? So you think that the dad was like was, was like, like 29? Yeah, he's 29. <laughs> just, just super leathery and salt and pepper in the beard. Those are real desert miles. Yeah. There are <laughs> there are a few things about this movie in the opening that feel a little bit propagandistic. Definitely felt like we were we were in for what could be a real polemical film because the way they're ejected from their property at, yeah. the, at the top of the movie. It's like ejected from the property, like flash forward to the end of World War II and French troops are just like wandering around Algeria murdering people without cause. This could be a, a movie that really hits us over the head. But then as, as it evolves, right, it took a much more, um, it felt much less didactic. Right, and much subtler, which is surprising given how didactic it is at, at the outset. I really liked the hypocrisy presented here of like victory over an oppressor at the end of World War II and then not really even recognizing that you're an oppressor too. Right. I I could get with that. I thought it was so interesting that it was Mesoud that was the one that was there in French Indochina absorbing that message from the Viet Cong and like he's, you know, sitting in his in his prison camp in, in Vietnam, you know, being having this propaganda broadcast at him but when he comes back he is like he really needs to be like talked into becoming the violent freedom fighter he, he really wants to pursue a like a non-violent approach one thing i learned when we watched battle of algiers was just exactly how many algerians fought in the french army and remained in the french army but then um, we, this movie refers to the Harkies many times as kind of a sort of a branch of the police, but really the Harkies were 
uh, Harki is a sort of overarching term for Algerians who I guess worked for France or took the side of France, even though they weren't assimilated, but they were, some people would call them collaborators. Some would say they were just, um, they basically had a job. Is Harki like Vichy? That's the thing. It's such a, Harkis are such a complicated subgroup. I mean, I, I read one thing that said there were, there were like three times as many Algerians in, in various ways fighting for France during the Algerian War of Independence than there were um, Algerian members of the FLN. Hmm. So, but it was, you know, in some cases as militia, in some cases as police, in some cases as, I think, I think it was a slippery slope because as, as it transitioned from post-war, like it, from wartime Algeria to post, post-war Algeria, there are a lot of people that uh, were just kind of working a job and suddenly they found themselves on the, working on the French side of the revolution. And, and there were a lot of political parties in Algeria at the time and, and the FLN was fighting them as well. And so if your dad was on the wrong side of some political disagreement with the FLN, all of a sudden you're the enemy and really he was fighting for Algerian independence too. I mean, it was, it was like a, it was pretty garbled, I think for a few years there before the FLN became the, the unifying party. This film is a little bit garbled on the FLN. I mean, like given it's the way it begins, like I, I was kind of buckling in for a movie about how great the FLN is. And I feel like it does, it does not cast it in a perfectly positive light. Which I loved. That was when the movie really got me on its side, was when it started to interrogate the heroes. Does the end justify these means or not? And, and, and like, are, are we losing our souls doing this the way we're doing it? Yeah, and Saeed's reluctance to be as hardline as his brothers was how that, that conflict was embodied. Like, Saeed the whole time is like, yeah, guys. I will ride for the cause. Like I'm a card carrying member too, but like, can I please also have my own life? Right. He was not permitted to have that life. And I thought that was a great way to tell that story. I think without the Saeed character, it becomes, I mean, it's, it doesn't make a strong enough case for FLN anyway, but the Saeed character really makes the conflict interesting because all he wants is a cigar, man. Every once in a while. Why can't you have it all is <laughs> yeah. what Saeed's saying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's like anybody in a, in any political struggle kind of deals with that, right? Like to what extent is living comfortably kind of giving aid and comfort to the oppressor? Hmm. Well, and the FLN was not an Islamic political group, but they made this of membership or, you know, to smoke and to drink was to betray the Algerian cause. And that's yeah. a kind of fundamentalism that, I mean, otherwise they were, they were hyper modern, uh, socialist res- revolutionaries. And so it's hard to know where that kind of puritanical impulse was from other than to just say, look, Saeed, you can't wear these fancy suits and this like rakish hat. An, an essential component of fundamentalism is that though. I mean, it's always the person who smokes, even though you're not allowed to. It's always the, <laughs> I know you're not allowed to drink, but right. <laughs> but no one has to know. Like, I wonder how much the um, 
you know, in these nationalist movements where the nationalism is happening within a kind of one religion state, you know, the, the Algerians weren't fighting. I mean, the French were Catholics, right? And the, but all Algerians presumably are, are practitioners of Islam. Right. And of course, during the Algerian civil war of the late eighties, early nineties, it was the FLN against um, like Islamic rebels at that point in time. Um, but I think of it as being, I think of the FLN as being a kind of, you know, like a communist revolutionary organization, which, or at least a socialist one. And, yeah. and that whole movement was hostile to religion. That global movement at least was hostile to religion. But I mean, are they exploiting religion in order to, this is into the nuances of, <laughs> of Algerian politics in the fifties, but. Right. My, my impulse is to think that religion, we never see a single person pray in this movie, except for the mom. She references Allah, but none of our protagonists do. They never even say like, Godspeed, God be with you to one another. I mean, there wasn't a bunch of that in Battle of Algiers either. I feel like I understood the conflict a lot better from this movie than Battle of Algiers. Did you? I mean, you guys probably had a better understanding of it going in. This was a much more political movie, and I think yeah. it's it was structured in a way that we've seen before, right? We've seen, how many movies have you seen where two guys run down into a subway and get on a train, and a third guy is chasing them with a gun and gets there yeah. as the train pulls away? God, you really want to skip that stop when you pull into that <laughs> station, right? God, that is... <laughs> A bad scene out there. Yeah, that was a terrible, uh, a terrible riot right at the end. But so, so I, you know, there were a couple of times in this movie where I tried to compare it to The Patriot. I mean, the difference being that the that this movie takes place largely in the land of the oppressor rather than in your homeland. But you know, they're fighting a war of they're fighting a patriotic war of independence, and there are some analogous moments with the Patriot where you kind of would uh, just the, the vibe or the setup, right? Having, having to go underground, but having your family remain as a liability to, to be protected. Right. Colonel Fave, he's the bad guy in the film. He's the architect of a lot of the bad things that happen here. When Abdulkader gets shot on the subway platform, there's a moment between him and Fave where he expresses like a grief, a kind of grief for, for his opponent. That's almost, that almost feels like grudgingly respectful or sporting in a way that it was the moment of the movie for me. Hat tip. Yeah. But that is the way that this film, I don't like, I don't, I don't know how this film compares to the Patriot and I kind of cut you off. No, it's okay. You were right to do it. (laughs) It was a little bit of a forced analogy. The, the heavy in the Patriot is so bloodthirsty and awful in a way that I feel like the heavy in this film is not, even though his responsibility, he's responsible for a lot of the bad things. You aren't watching him, uh, unzip someone's body and dig their guts out. Like he's not brutal in that same way. Well, but the analog to the, to the bad guy in the Patriot is the original inspector who was, who was, pushing people into canals with their hands tied. And, you know, he was just, yeah. he was adopting a completely ruthless. Those uh, guys could swim though, right? Wasn't the mm, implication yeah. that they'd be fine? Yeah, they were fine. 
that's right. That's right, Adam. They were fine. But, but right, oh no, are like, you saying? Oh, oh I'm afraid, no. I'm afraid they did. Yeah, some, somebody yeah. died in this war film, yeah, Adam. There were some dead oh, people. Oh no. But I think Colonel Favre uh, was. Um, I'm going to have to say it that way, huh? Was from the very beginning. Uh, you know, uh, he he entered the film as a sympathetic character, right? He he was there at the investigation of the first murder of that bar owner, right? And he and the and the you know the bad inspector was like, "This is my turf. Back off." And yeah. you could just see and that Fevre he is is arguing for like let's let's try and calm things down, not not shake things up. And his investigation, his um, his techniques are having a real effect. And he felt, you know, when he invented the red hand, I think that was only after after having met Abdelkader and realizing, like, oh, okay, it's on. Oh, this guy's a true believer the way I was when I was in the French Resistance. But he all, I think, I feel like I, I felt like throughout the film that he always spiritually kind of felt an allegiance with the with the algerian cause it felt very heat and de niro pacino yeah in this yeah film. but but he was but he also was a was a french patriot and i mean I, you sense these undercurrents in our contemporary society where there are people whose sympathies are on the right side but they have found mm-hmm. themselves they they wake up one day and they're like wait a minute am i on the wrong side like I, yeah. I was just doing what I, I was just doing what I thought was right. And all of a sudden I'm, I feel like maybe I'm working for the enemy, but you know, they can't yeah. quite get their head around. No it. one's allowed that epiphany in this film. I don't think. Everybody that's a never Trump with, that still has an R next to their name is like, uh. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that crowd, and also like the just the old school Democrats who, uh, in a, uh, to make the comparison in America, people who are like, well, wait a minute, you know, like I'm a Democrat, but I support the police, but I kind of don't. I feel like maybe that's less and less defensible in some circumstances. You know, there there are a lot of people that right now in our in our society where it seems like the the lines are shifting. And he was a revolutionary, and then he became a a colonel in the French army in at Dien Bien Phu, and he probably even then knew he was on the wrong side. I loved that that moment where, as Abdelkader is bleeding out on the subway platform, concedes defeat to Abdelkader, and that's not the first time he does. Like he, like he's had it in mind for a long time. Like what a fascinating character, and he's fascinating all the way through. Like when he's uh, when they raid the the print shop that's run by the the communist, and he's and they like know each other from the French Resistance. Like they, they were yeah they were <laughs> allies and friends. You could tell you could tell they had worked together closely. That was a beautiful scene. That print shop guy was so great. He was so great. He had resting fuck you face. He really did. Yeah. Even when they found all the evidence and they were like, take him away. He was like, ah, yeah. <laughs> Fuck you. See you in five years. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. He had, he had no problem like catching a, a sentence. He'd been in the shit. Yeah. But not in Den Ben Fu. <laughs> no. <laughs> Early on when the brothers are committing the murders, there's a kind of observation of a homemade legal formality to things. Right. That I found fascinating that it didn't take long for them to to stop observing. 
Yeah. It's that revolutionary impulse. And we, we're living in a time now where we're seeing a rise of sort of revolutionary fervor that's happening exclusively on the internet, it seems like. But when I was... <laughs> That's what the Russians want you to think. I know, that's right. Well, what the Russians want you to do is compare your penis to other penises on the internet and be sad. The Russians <laughs> want you to take a picture of your penis and then see what your penis will look like in 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> but in the 1980s when I was a teenager, like there were a lot of revolutionary movements still very active globally. You know, you had the PLO and you had the IRA and you had the Red Brigade and Symbionese Liberation Army. Well, not them anymore, but, you know, and, and <laughs> Bader Meinhof, like that stuff had kind of all it had dissipated, but they, there was still terrorist training camps in Libya. I mean, it was still a going concern and there was still a lot of revolutionary rhetoric in the world, a belief in a global revolution that was inevitable because the Soviet Union still existed and was still still stood there as as um, a living example of of an alternative to global capitalism. And most people today have have grown up in a world where there hasn't been anything other than global capitalism for for their whole lives. And so you forget that that socialist or maybe you never experienced that kind of socialist rhetoric in the world, in the language. I mean, there was always somebody in the 80s, there was always someone standing at the top of a of an airline gangplank or whatever, gangway, reading from a piece of paper saying, I, you know, I hereby declare this airplane is now the territory of Slobovia. <laughs> and, you know, and then they would like wheel a guy, wheel a Jewish guy in a wheelchair and off the edge and be like, you are the first, you know, I sends you to death. I mean, it's just like a, it's a kind of ballet. John, what the fuck are you talking about, man? <laughs> I'm really trying hard to understand. I do not understand. I, it was my high I'm school just, I'm years. just gazing out the window. <laughs> do you want me to leave? I feel like the movie is now going to flash back 20 years to try and track how we got to this point. Uh, I wrote so many manifestos. I have them around here in a box somewhere. All these revolutionary manifestos, I all these like proclamations. We finally got to the part where you got what you wanted out of this podcast, where you could just talk and talk about some insane idea. Listen. You you will bow before my revolutionary fervor. I'm telling you. If I could understand your fervor, maybe. I will kill my own brother. It's totally inscrutable to me. <laughs> oh, I, I, in a way, I miss those days. The, the days of pushing a Jewish guy in a wheelchair <laughs> off of an airplane? No, not those days. But definitely every once in a while, I feel like blowing up an airplane on some airstrip somewhere. The way that uh, recruitment <laughs> Remind is... Remind me next time we book a, a tour for Friendly Fire to make sure you're on different flights from me and Adam and Rob. <laughs> I think you would have had an easier time recruiting me, John, if mm. you had gone the abdicator route, which yeah. was like sort of turning recruitment for the FLN into a multi-level marketing thing. I <laughs> love that scene in the prison where, <laughs> where he's like, guys. first of all, you got to recruit your friends and family. That's just the first rule. And then they recruit other friends and family members under them. And before you know it, you're garroting like 10 people a week. 
<laughs> now, you will have to fill your garage with garrets, like yeah. shelves and shelves of garrets, and it's anybody's <laughs> guess whether you'll be able to move those garrets, but... We really do watch the purity of that revolution start to, to start to kill these guys from inside. In that way, it feels a lot like a heist movie, in that the focus is narrowed in the beginning, and the justifications feel more sound, and especially as the murder is related to the formality that they give it. And the further away they get from that, the more uh, the more depraved it seems. Yeah, they seem to become their own enemy. Yeah, and this is a this is a a theme that plays out in a lot of heist films, right? right. Like like you, one last job, guys, and then we're yeah. out for good. And then you just get drawn in by some other reason. The, the character arc of Mesaud throughout this film, I mean, he's obviously the heart of this movie in a way. He's a big guy and, and a scary guy. And he comes to, to France and feels like, I'm done killing. And then immediately gets turned into the, the assassin by his brother. Yeah, and then he has he has a kid. I mean, we watch him. I just want to suffer. point out that he barfs after killing the bartender, and uh, Algerian barf is made out of a different uh, type of soup than <laughs> um, to be, all of not, the other barf we've seen on the show. Not to be that guy, but he actually barfed after the second killing. He barfed after oh, he, he barf killed the, after he killed the refrigerator stealing guy. Oh, oh yeah, fuck. right. That poor mm. fridge Maybe guy. Maybe he just got some some soup out of the fridge. The thing about fridge guy is later on in the movie, would they have killed fridge guy? Like fridge guy stole that fridge at the wrong time. Because Did the they, wife keep the fridge? It's as a consolation prize. I like that he was like will, willing to contribute the fridge to the cause. <laughs> Can't have a cause without a fridge. Mesaud comes out after killing him in his chair in his own living room, barfs on the stoop, and then presumably they walk away. So the wife comes back, there's barf on the uh, outside her door. That's and then, a bad time. And then there's a dead husband, yeah. and but she gets to keep the fridge? If I get home yeah. at any point in my life and there's barf on the porch, I'm mm. not going in the house. Is that right? Something bad is going to be in there. I'm, I'm calling 911 from the front lawn. Yeah. You see two tablespoonfuls of Chef Boyardee outside of a house. Run. Are you suggesting that anyone that came to do villainy on Adam and his home would be a Chef Boyardee eater? Is that how you know? I'm just saying. That's, that's, that's what the barf looked like They to wouldn't me. find it in my house. They'd have to bring their own. The people that came for me would definitely be vegans. Guys, mm. was it the wife's fault or was she taking the fall for her husband? Because oh, I think no, we've all been there. It's always the wife's You're fault. You're made to buy a thing you don't want to buy. This is the thing. Yeah. Just to make a that, happy home. That was the most realistic part of the movie, in fact. <laughs> I would say that that is exactly the opposite in my relationship. I'm always the one that's like, let's get this great vacuum cleaner. And she's like, we don't have the money for it. Hmm. And I just, I just put, press forward, you know. I steal from my uh, my local revolutionary group. Make it happen. Well, and in in the version in the film version of your life, your wife will be garroted, <laughs> and you'll be standing there in a, in your apron holding yeah, the vacuum with cleaner barf on your porch, going, "I'll give it back. I'll give it back." Yeah, yeah. Use it in the revolution. Nature's miracle. It's an enzymatic cleaner to get that barf up off the off the stoop. We're having a lot of laughs about this scene, but that set the tone in a lot of ways for me because as that scene progresses, I feel like 
as a viewer, you're getting this guy off the hook. Look, he's he's really sorry. Yeah. Look, he's got a wife. Yeah, he's got three kids. He's going to make this right. She's taking the blame. He's not going to kill her, right? And then, and then as she backs out of the scene, like the clouds start to form and you're like, oh no, this is really happening. Well, and I feel like what that scene established was had a lot to do with the relationship between Abdelkader and Mesoud because that was yeah. the killing that Mesoud didn't want to do and it was the point at which Abdelkader was becoming a fanatic. It made the case for the inflexibility that would follow for the rest of the film. But I was terrified. It's of- when they set their humanity aside. Yeah. Because after that, like, Abdelkader is such an ascetic. Like, he he refuses the advances of the pretty girl that wants to hug and kiss him. Like, Boy, he really fucked it up with Helene, right? He did, man. Yeah. He had a chance with Helene. He finally got there and led her to a Peugeot full of C4. But even then, I couldn't tell whether he was, he finally got there because there was some strategic advantage. They were moving, they were going to Germany together and, and he was like, all right, well, let's just get this over with. I mean, it was hard to tell. We never got to see that evolve, but I was terrified as, as he became more and more a fanatic that we were watching a movie where that was going to be the the center of the film, right? That he was going to become, he was going to get more and more lost in his fanaticism. His brother was going to lose his soul and we were going to have, and it was just going to be a kind of emotional desolation as we watch them get, get more and more broken. But the movie doesn't fall into that trap because it's pursuing the plot of Algerian independence, which which is accomplished and accomplished by a variety of means. And like you said earlier, Adam, like Saeed, the presence of Saeed and the fact that he never surrenders, he maintains his autonomy. He maintains his kind of Westernization. He likes being in France. I feel like he kind of dares them to kill him. He does. Knowing that, that they won't. He dares a half a dozen people to kill him in this movie. Yeah. And it's, and well, he doesn't know they won't. I mean, they have that, Abdel uh, Kadar and Masoud have that have that confrontation in the street where Masoud is like puts the, his own gun to his head and is like, "Go ahead and shoot me if you're going to start shooting brothers." Yeah, I, that was a turning point too, and yeah. a, and an and an eloquent one. I think Saeed's argument that having an Algerian boxing champion would be great for Algeria, one way or the other, like whether he's fighting for Algeria or for France, is fairly compelling I thought so and too. i wondered how the fln orthodoxy around forbidding it was arrived at like why did they all believe so fervently that if he was fighting for france then he was you know fighting against algeria it felt exactly like you see so often in these situations where someone within a revolutionary organization has a theory and they can articulate that theory and then that becomes doctrine. And the the theory doesn't have, it. it isn't especially interrogated. It's just sort of one person says, it would be good for us. And the other person goes, no, it will not. And then there's not a higher authority that's making decisions. It's kind of all these cells are just operating according to like a theoretical framework. 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I assumed that the that their denial of his whole boxing idea came from something related to not buying cigarettes or alcohol because the taxes would go to the French. Like somebody who is French is going to make money off of a fight. They're so conscious of optics yeah. in so many other places where they're like, yeah, if a bunch of our people get slaughtered in the street, that looks good for us, actually. Yeah. That why they couldn't also see what you guys are saying, that an Algerian boxing champion would be an argument for Algeria, not for France. I mean, this is nuanced and purity is what fanaticism is all about. I don't know. He he really represents a lot of things that kind of run contrary to what the FLN was working on. And like, it starts with the fact that he's a pimp and that, and that's, you know, execrable and doesn't reflect well on the family. And then the mom is kind of the main character that rides for that. But by the time he's, made enough money to open a cabaret you know he calls it the casbah and it's kind of like the you know disneyland version of algerian culture he's orientalizing himself or his own his own people that's got to be such a you know like we want to have like a distinct identity and this is undercutting it and and turning it into a cartoon of itself and well, and that's always that weird argument, right? Because he could say, no, I'm, it's like a, sure, it's a little bit of a, of a comedy, but like if you, Ben, if you moved to Amsterdam and opened up a restaurant called Hamburger, Hamburger, Bang, Bang, and you walked around <laughs> Fuck, all I'm day. I'm doing that right now. <laughs> you walked around all day in a, like a Patriots sweatshirt with a Burger King <laughs> crown on. Yeah. And other Americans came in and said, you're making a you're making a hash of our culture and you're like, what are you talking about? I think our culture is uniquely well suited to being converted into hash though. (laughs) It truly is. We're kind of the (laughs) potato of cultures. I I did the study abroad in Dublin uh, when I was in college and the, and the ethnic food aisle in my local grocery store had an American subsection. It was so fucking embarrassing. It was like (laughs) Oreos, Twinkies, uh, like you know, log cabin maple syrup, like yeah. everything. Just the good shit. Yeah, funfetti cake mix. <laughs> it was so fucking bad. It was awful. <laughs> but like I've, I have been into a bar in Morocco called the Casbah, where dancing girls were, you know, doing the dance of a, of the seven veils or the thousand veils. I don't remember how many veils, somewhere between seven and a thousand. <laughs> I think it's much closer to seven. <laughs> so there are, you know, boy, will this fucking lady get these veils off, please. This is she, taking forever. She walks out on stage at the start and then she just looks like a pile of rags. It's <laughs> like well, that guy in the viral video with 300 t-shirts on. <laughs> Could I be wearing any more clothes? But I mean, it's it, it. There is in that Casbah bar. It is orientalized for a French audience, but it's also not. Com- it's not a complete cartoon. Those those places do exist even in Arab countries. Although you know, often for for the, even even the locals. Right. Who are By the same token, like I went to an Irish pub in Abu Dhabi. You know, like. <laughs> well, if you go to an Irish pub just down the street from where I'm sitting right now, it's going to be a freaking cartoon. Yeah, so, somebody from New Zealand working there talking about Patty McShaughnessy. <laughs> We've gone a little afar, <laughs> far afield. Is this just your observation of Saeed's restaurant? I didn't really. I 
until you brought it up, I didn't really think he opened a TGI Fridays the way that you're, that you're making it. Like, do his brothers hate his place? Yeah, I think they do. I think hmm. they, I think they think it's pandering. It, it's a presentation of Algeria that is that exoticizes a thing that in reality is the structure of this film is such that it jumps forward in time a lot. And so there is an intervening moment where you'd think that the brothers would have something to say as this place was purchased and its remodel was happening and stuff. Right. Where where were they then? Well, they, I it's mean, a little late, guys. Uh, Mesaud does come in to the, the bar that first time and looks around and is like, hmm, uh-huh, I see. So you're doing a dancing girl thing? Is that what? Say, so it's like, <laughs> look, there's a Mesaud burger on the menu. I named it for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's delicious. It actually comes with a rope on the plate. You have to cut it in half with the rope. Aww. Don't miss the Abdel Qadr dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man, sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. Alcohol is not permitted in Islam. But... People like to drink the world over. And so there are kind of lines drawn around spaces, hotel, uh, rooftop bars. You know, there are places where Western visitors come where drinking is allowed. But it's not, you know, you don't just walk down, walk through the Casbah in Fez and see bars all over. I have a friend who's Muslim and he, he, he drinks, but like his house has a bar in it that is totally concealed it comes out when the coast is clear and family members who would pass judgment on that are not around yeah it's just not as casual and i mean obviously like millions of muslims like to drink alcohol but it's not a you don't walk down a street that are that that's full of bars so just the whole juxtaposition of like an algerian themed bar restaurant that is primarily a place to drink and smoke is just sort of intrinsically like a um, like a clash. Oh, you use the word clash? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Drop your bombs between the minarets, wow. Adam. That was nicely done. <laughs> Man, that was like the film studies paper we didn't see coming. Kaboom! It was yeah, it was film studies and music history. I threw that football to the end zone. It was a hail mary. 
clock went down to zero. When Abdelkader comes and, and sees the place for the first time and Saeed says that he calls it the Casbah, like if if Abdelkader had replied, Sharif don't like it, I would have ceased to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, did you guys know that this is like somewhat a sequel, but not really to a, a 2006 film about Algerian troops in World War II? That's on our list. Hmm. I feel like it's kind of been on and off our list a couple of times because it's a little tricky to find. Like, you can watch this movie on PlayStation movie service, apparently, but, like, I couldn't find it on Amazon, which I I do not understand, like, why that happens. I just hate the world so much. I know. Doesn't the world suck? PlayStation, what? But, yeah, Yeah. it has a lot of the same cast and made by the same director. Same, like the same three guys and their their first names are the same, but I don't think that they're brothers in Days of Glory. Did you guys feel in watching this movie sympathy with the Algerian independence move, movement to the same degree that you did uh, in the movie The Battle of Algiers? Wow, that's a great question. This is a terrorism movie, and it's and the argument the revolutionary argument is you take the fight to the oppressor and if you are, and we see it, we see it both overt and covert many times in the movie, um, overtly expressed that if you kill a French policeman on the street in France, that is effectively a war killing and not a murder. It's hard not to have your allegiances cemented by starting the movie with that massacre, right? Right. That's why that ejection of the family from their yeah. their family ground felt so heavy-handed at the time. It sets yeah. up it has to set up the justification for the whole yeah, plot. Yeah, it's not proportional but it's justified. I mean, conservatives in France decried this movie as just a total fabrication and that I mean like if you read their responses it's like it's like the only reason the French troops started started reprisal killings in Algeria was because the Algerians were killing them. Yeah, but the conservatives in France uh, still don't want Jews in France. I mean, conserv- right. conservatives in France aren't aren't very reliable narrators. It's like they're not taking the one step further back of why were there French troops in Algeria? Right. <laughs> why did France feel entitled to running this place? This film definitely has a point of view, but are there parts of this film that are that are fiction in a way that make us question like whether or not we're being manipulated. No, I don't think so. I felt less and less manipulated as the film went on huh. and more and more like, like this was a pretty good, um, it was tonally, I, I thought yeah. pretty representative. I think that what I was concerned about with those early scenes was this is going, this is a movie that is so dead set on, on biasing me against one side that, it's going to, it's going to ring hollow in the end. It because it will just be a, a work of total propaganda. Right. And what I realized, uh, I think, sort of as the Colonel Fev character became more and more a force in the film, like those early scenes are much more about establishing what motivated these three brothers to become the men that they became, and and less about making us become those men. C'est qui? Algira Blanche. John, how badly do you want to live a life where you go 
get fitted for a suit and while you're being fitted the tailor is telling you about all of the uh all of the operations you need to be conducting with your so, fanatic group so good as he's as he's as he's constructing his jacket and then says here's a list of police that I think we can turn into informants. I'll just put it here in this jacket I'm making for you. Yeah, I'll sew it into the pocket as the as the pocket is coming together. <laughs> I felt like sitting there going, "Could you put like a like a hidden holster, like a like a shoulder holster, but build it into the jacket?" <laughs> I had to do the math in reverse on how the pistol got into the police station, but I thought that he'd like gotten some like crazy tailoring job on his suit where a pistol wouldn't be detected in a pat down. And t- it turned out it was a scene from The Godfather, but. Yeah, that fucking raiding the police station scene is harrowing, man. Really great. There are a lot of great... So first of all, I mean, we haven't talked about really the movie in the as a movie yet, but I thought that this was a beautiful movie. The costumes were fantastic, and the yeah. repeated sort of tense moments where the tension just sort of builds and you you get a release, but you know, I never felt manipulated. I, it was a really enjoyable movie watching experience the costumes tell you so much about like where they are in their lives too because i mean they're they're extremely poor when they first get to paris and that's conveyed in everything from the you know the sets to the to their clothes but they you know like as they become more and more powerful and the and the movement becomes more and more powerful they start to wear tailored clothing and look really fancy but then you know saeed has like a much more a, a much flashier style of dress than Abdelkader or Masoud. It was very well well executed, and then I loved seeing the the costuming be executed as beautifully over the course of the several years that the the film follows the characters. It was a refreshing change. I don't know if that's the right word, but you know, you watch a bunch of war films where the combatants are wearing. Uh, fatigues or whatever and in this film the suit is the garment that connotes Mm -hmm. impending death and how interesting was it that the film kind of starts off that way with the gendarme in those black suits and then the and then the suits throughout the film as representing this this power this monolithic power uh, i thought was a really interesting choice i had a question about the fatigues worn by the french soldiers in uh, in the massacre scenes in Algeria at the beginning, because they ran out, and when I saw their helmets, I was like, "Oh, these are American troops! Like, what's going on with that?" And then they, you hear them speaking, and they're speaking French. Did did you guys read those helmets wrong the way I did, or am I just uniquely bad at that? No, those were American <laughs> helmets, and my assumption was that the Vichy French are there defending North Africa, but when the Americans arrive, the French kind of. Uh, they don't really fight for France. They don't fight for Vichy France. They kind of turn over their guns, and a lot of them right. became part of the American effort. And the American they're army, Vichy when no one's looking, right? But the American army then outfitted the French in Africa with American right. equipment, and then those French soldiers played a role, a big role, they including Algerians on, on the side of the Allies, right? And the Algerian are the Algerian uh, members of the French army were played a big role in reliberating France. They, they invaded Italy with the allies. Like they were, they were in the game 
and I think probably supplied by the U.S. It just goes to show that arming or financing a certain side of a conflict works every time. It never goes wrong. <laughs> when, when, when we gave all those uh, shoulder-fired uh, anti-aircraft rockets to the Taliban. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, back in 87, we were on, we the, are on the side of We are reaping those rewards. <laughs> Mujahid, do what you willst. Oof. One thing that I found interesting in watching this movie was that it kind of spans like the end of World War II through the early 60s. And that like post-war military hardware just looks so different from everything before. And I was like, oh, like, you know, like this looks like the Vietnam era when you start to see helicopters and stuff. And then I found out that part of the reason for that is because of this moment of pedantry, pedant on the internet pointed out that the French Air Force plane that you see in 1953 Indochina seems to be a modern Hercule C-130 instead of a a Noratlas that would would have been used then. Hmm. Uh, So I I thought that that was fascinating, both because it was actually a modern plane that we saw, but also because the French called them Hercule (laughs) C-130s. C-130 Hercules is what we call them. It seemed very anachronistic. But if if all you have is access to that plane, shooting it head-on is probably the way you seek to obscure its modernity, right? Right. My moment of pedantry had to do with uh, Abdelkader's rimless glasses frames. He did have very cool glasses. Oh, they were extremely cool. There are different. There are a couple of different looks uh, that he had over over the course of the film, but uh, never not pretty cool. Really cool glasses. And my feeling is by the f- by the late fifties, I think of those as being the quintessential French like urban, sophisticated glasses frames. I say this as a collector of glasses, and I say this as someone who just 48 hours ago bought a pair of those frames on eBay, and they are on their way to my house right now, and I bought them before watching this movie. So when they appeared in this movie, I was thrilled. Because <laughs> were your I, eBay search terms outside the law glasses? No, and they were sold as those. No, I go online and hey, I hey outside the law fans. I don't want to give this. I don't want to give too many of my secrets away. But if you mm. if you look for things on eBay that were made in West Germany, you can find some very interesting things because West Germany, of course, Adam. What is it? What is it that we know about West Germany? Uh, it's it's the western part. Yes. Of Germany? Yes. But if something says it was made in West Germany, it had to have been made before 1990. Right. So it's an instant sort of like decade uh, indicator. God, I just really had a college flashback just now where the professor is just doing the talk Adam. and then all of a sudden his eyes find you. <laughs> Adam, <and laughs> what? Uh, so Adam often has dreams about showing up to record Friendly Fire naked. Yeah. That dream... Almost became a nightmare today when I showed up at John's and he was just wearing boxers. They're not boxers. You can't convince me those are shorts. They're They're too short. They're normal shorts. They're summer shorts. It's summer. You are hanging sack. No, come on. (laughs) What do you even, you know, keep your eyes up here. Just because you wear past the knee cargo shorts, Adam, doesn't mean that we all have to wear them also. Yeah, your jams don't set the tone for our fashion. You are so well dressed, Ben. Just the best dressed. Friendly fireman. You know, Ben, when Adam arrived at the house today, I realized that he is absolutely boiling over with rage and he has no outlet for it. 
He doesn't even have your self-recrimination outlet. Oh yeah, I can, I can focus it all in in yeah. on myself. Your stomach, it's great. <laughs> it, it, your stomach is such a knot that you're like shitting blood walnuts. Mm. But a- Adam doesn't even have that, and I don't know where. I, I think, mean, I'm doing that anyway. I think the rage is going to come out someday mm. in a in a in a bad way. I don't know where though. He loves his pets. He's good to service industry employees. He doesn't yeah. dare cross his wife. What's he going to be? He's going to go underground like Abdelkader. But anyway, Abdelkader's glasses, when he first appears at the protest in May of 1945, he's already wearing these cool rimless frames that I don't think existed in 45. I think they are of 50s. And I mean, somebody, somebody more knowledgeable than me, although I don't think there is anyone more knowledgeable than me on this topic. <laughs> <laughs> might might come at me on this. We're going to have some f- fucking college professor who teaches glasses studies at uh they have a whole section in their in their class about that specific set of frames. The historicity of glasses frames may be that may be where I make my name. <laughs> Adam's sitting over here. He's super mad. I don't even know what about. What are no, you No, I'm just thinking about? about like where does Abdelkader get off buying stylish glasses? Oh. Like it does isn't that isn't that counter to the purity of of his message? Like, well, we're not going to have any comforts around here. We're going to stick all our money and garrets into into where it belongs. I think that like a lot of contemporary cool glasses are based on dorky old glasses, though. Yeah, I think what, one thing we forget is that in the late fifties, early sixties, style was just in everything. Like it was like design was at its peak. And so even your basic suits and glasses frames to us now look like, Whoa, everybody looks like Sammy Davis jr. And it's just that, no, that was, it was just the, that, those were the you're, high You're times. talking about Massad, right? <laughs> yeah. But I think in that suit, I would have looked like Sammy Davis jr. Mm. John, you are not allowed to look like Sammy Davis jr. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's how you get canceled felt horrible. I wanted to talk about the role Vietnam has in inspiring what happened in Algeria because this movie makes draws a very clear line between Vietnamese uh anti-colonial fighting and like El- the Algerians are taking uh, a lot of inspiration and tactics from the Vietnamese and uh I think that it's probably just uh, idiocy on my part, but that was not something I'd never really like given much consideration to. At the end of the war, like the Japanese went into a lot of French into China, well, it went into it all, and invaded. So the Japanese were this sort of double invader. When the war kind of came to an end and the Vietnamese and the Cambodians kind of rose up against the Jap- Japanese occupier. There were a lot of assurances made, I think, at the time that they were fighting for their own independence rather than expelling the Japanese just to welcome the French back. And that right. was a that was a major betrayal uh, or received as a betrayal in Indochina and was a betrayal. Uh, and we've seen that in the colonial enterprise after World War One, too. That was the that was the whole that was the whole story of Arabia that the British got the uh, the Arabs to fight the Turks on their behalf with the premise that they were going to become 
independent. And then it ended up that the British and French just established this, uh, like a new colony where the Ottomans had been. So I, I feel like the, when the Vietnamese rose up against the French at the end of World War II, they had this sense of like, wait a minute, no, we've already expelled the invader and all we have to do is just keep this momentum going. We're going to kick everybody out. You know, independence is our, is our thing. And, you know, it took them, well, assuming it started in 45, 55, 65, 70, I mean, it took them 30 years um, to finally achieve Vietnamese independence. I think that the, that at the end of World War II, globally, I mean, throughout Africa, all of the nations were were conscious of this. Like, look, we've this is uh, World War II is a perfect analogy for our situation, and we want you out now. And and global sympathy was on their side. I think for the first time, a feeling that w- that we're seeing in this movie, a kind of t- tide turning. There's no self awareness in a colonizer, though, is there? Well, no, because they think yeah. they're bringing clean water and good government. Yeah. You know, they really do. They believe they're greeted as liberators. It's a hell of a combination. That moment when Colonel Fev is, is saying, like, you know, Charles de Gaulle considers France to be a counterbalance against the USSR and the USA as, like, a third, like, global power, but that only works if we have our, our globe-spanning pre-war empire intact. Well, and the French in particular are super paternalistic in the way they talk about, and and partly it's because they have this idea that they are that the that they're colorblind or that they're um, like the idea that people in their colonies have an opportunity to be become Frenchmen, right? So their whole their whole attitude to the as Algerians, if that's aspirational. I know, right? Would you like that? How would you like? How would you like this? Here's your consolation. Only prize. one of the three hosts on Friendly Fire aspired to that. <laughs> So what if I do? <laughs> but that business of feeling, you know, and you see it in the in these contemporary news reports that play throughout this film, where some news reporter is like, ah, the French are in Algeria and are making everything better. They bring the bubbly water and they have the buns. We have delicious buns. And the Algerians are like, what the, what the fuck, man? We don't want your buns. We don't even eat buns. That's where the Algerians and I part ways. <laughs> Enjoy the bubbly water and the buns. When you zoom in on some of these scenes during the, the, the massacre, you'll see people holding signs. One of them said, we don't want your buns. We don't want your buns. The Vietnamese <laughs> at least were like, yeah, we'll take the buns. Yeah. We'll, the bun me, we figured yeah. that we'll out. Make a, we'll yeah. make a kick-ass sandwich out of those buns. Yeah. Also the cream puffs. We're going to keep the cream puffs. Yeah. Everything sure else will. has to go. Yeah. Including you. Get the fuck out. Au revoir. We'll take your pot au feu and make our own type of feu. It might be better than pot au feu. You had to take it one step too far. That's one step too far? Just a stack of fucking hats just (laughs) fell over. (laughs) Just 200 hats on this dining room table. Well, we're finally here. I'm calling it. It's Mm. time to review the film. (laughs) Outside the Law, 2010's Outside the Law deserves a review after this kind of conversation. And it needs a rating system. And what's it going to be? I think... Buns. God, it should be buns, right? 
There, we don't see any buns in this movie, but... I know, and, and that's how these films are rated on Friendly Fire. It's got to be in the movie. Yeah. Uh, the idea of a resistance, as depicted in a film, having everyday objects become extremely threatening is sort of a thing. Like, that's a technology that a resistance has in fighting an oppressor. And very early on, we get that moment. We get the moment outside where Masoud cuts down the clothesline and, and is like... Hey, Abdelkader, here's the weapon of war that we're going to use. It's a fucking clothesline, and they're everywhere. Guess what? Like, we have the weapons we need all around us. And to me, that, made a, that makes a great rating system for this film. It's the thing hiding in plain sight that is, at the same time, extremely threatening, just like these three brothers. Maybe even most like Saeed, who's like, who tries to integrate himself into the culture and the city that he's in. Like he's hiding in plain sight. How close is his club to that first bar where they ended up killing the bartender? I mean, you don't get the idea of the geography of the place to that degree, but they're in the same city, certainly walking distance. I like that. I like how these guys are just sprinkled around. And so that's going to be the rating system. One to five clothesline garrets. I liked the film a lot. It felt very uh, Algerian Untouchables to me in a fun way. Didn't think I would think this film was fun when it started uh, because it comes out of the gates really hard and ugly. That uh, the massacre at the beginning is disturbing and hard to watch and it really sets the tone and, it, and I think what it does is it like, you can't ever not be on the side of the brothers after that. And... Like in most war films, I frequently ride for the underdog, no matter how terrible the underdog's actions are, and frequently they're pretty grotesque in this film. thought there was something to like about all the brothers, but Saeed was my favorite, clearly. We didn't talk about the scene with the boxer at the end, where Saeed's story comes to a climax where he finally gets his chance with this boxer that he's groomed from the start, and the pain that he feels knowing that it's over for him. His brothers will never allow it. The boxer gets shot. That was awful. Like, to see a, a character's hopes extinguished so so completely was pretty brutal. But as he's getting dragged out of the back room with the boxer who he shot, yeah, uh, with a bullet in the leg screaming, Saeed's last words to him are, you'll be a champion one day. Like, <laughs> It's a heartbreaking moment. I really got Luis Guzman vibes from Saeed, didn't <laughs> yeah. you? And I mean that as a compliment. I, I, I really liked him. And I think maybe that, that might have done his character a disservice, how likable he was. I like a film that, that really takes a side hard. And I liked, I liked being shown the, the hypocrisy of the French in this film quite a bit. It seemed fair to me. The tension between propaganda and nuance is something that we've talked about throughout the show. I feel like it was more nuanced than propagandistic. I thought it was a really good-looking film, well-directed, well-acted, four clothesline garrets for me is what I'm going to give it. I think, I think it should be seen. I think it's a great companion piece for Battle of Algiers, I think. Uh, and it helped me understand the conflict more than that film. Yeah, it's really cool to see the, you know, like Battle of Algiers is such a, a small and contained 
movie, but to think about that as having been a a conflict that was being prosecuted on multiple fronts and in multiple contexts, um, you know, made me think a lot about the the way the term terrorism is used and you know, like how subjective it is a lot of the time. Like if you are fighting for freedom, like these guys are, it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem as unjustified. I mean, obviously like I am not a guy that is like raiding police stations and killing people and, you know, putting bombs in cars or whatever, but the movie is not celebratory of the, the more horrible acts that these guys commit, but it does help you understand how they got to be guys who are willing to do those things. It's the Chris Rock bit about like, I'd never hit a woman, but I understand. (laughs) (laughs) That's where you're coming at it from, Ben? I guess so. Like, I I mean, I think that that's like one of the, one of the powers of cinema that, that you can find yourself identifying with somebody who's doing something that you would never personally do. And, understand them a little bit better uh because of that and i think that the like the stuff i read online about the conservative reaction to this and you know decrying the film as ahistorical and and unfair and it is i think because of that you know when you watch this you you do see why and 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 so you have to like you can't criticize it on the motivations of the characters. You have to like try and make the case that none of this ever happened. So, so it you know it's prejudicial and and not a not an accurate representation of history. But like Rashid Bouchereb wrote this movie because he was interviewing Algerians to write his previous movie and they would start their story about when they were fighting in World War II and then, you know, the interview would be over and they'd be like, oh, yeah, and then I was also, like, a freedom fighter in the Algerian War of Independence and would keep telling their story. And he realized that there was a whole second act to to what he had set out to tell that he needed to sink his teeth into. Like, a lot of people who fought for France in World War II then went and fought with the FLN. And that's a totally amazing arc in history. And I'm really glad that we have this movie to explore it through. So I will also give it four clotheslines. I agree with both of your reviews. Um, I really ended up enjoying this movie. And, and I, uh, when I started it, the first 10 minutes, as I've said, I was super concerned that this was going to be a thing that wasn't going to let that wasn't going to give me a choice about where my, uh, where my thoughts wandered. And in fact, it ended up being, uh, it inter it interrogated all of its main characters. They interrogated one another, the revolution and terrorism and the police. I mean, everybody had, uh, had a chance to explain themselves and the, the, the flaws in everyone's argument were all there for us to, to paw through. It made an impact on me. What it doesn't show is that Algeria became a one-party state with the FLN as, you know, ostensibly a socialist revolutionary government, but in actuality, an authoritarian one-party government, you know, similar to the Ba'ath Party in Iraq. 
and the Algerians did not really achieve the the freedom that they hoped. And then that's often the case in revolutions like this, that, that if your focus, your, if, if 100% of your focus is on throwing off your oppressor and you're not spending at least that much focus on putting together the idea of a democratic government that's going to serve the people once you do throw off the oppressor, what you end up with is a, is a new government which is just made up of super um, rigid revolutionary thinkers who were heroes of the resistance and now are trying to be Democrats. And that's another one of the tragedies of the, the 20th century is that there were these freedom movements all around the world. The yoke of the colonial enterprise was thrown off but in a, in a lot of cases replaced with um, just a different style of authoritarianism. The FLN executed tens of thousands of Algerians after the conflict was over, first executed everybody they thought was a collaborator, including like tens of thousands of these Harkis. And then throughout the 60s and 70s and 80s continued to just put people up against the wall. I have to remember at the end of a thing like this, when the goals of our protagonists have been achieved, to also kind of not not let it end there. If if you're gonna if you're gonna keep interrogating, he said that there is uh, eventually going to be a a third film in this in this series. The the director. So I have my doubts about that as a film that had a twenty three million dollar budget and only made four. Like yeah, um, but the economics of film are really different in almost all other countries because yeah. a, a lot of the budget comes from public funds, hmm. and you know making your money back is not necessarily a condition of success. I think that's cool. I think Rashid Bouchereb has a lot to say, and so I hope he gets. I hope he gets to make that third film. Maybe the third film will star John Candy, and it'll be about the Algerian bobsled team. <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna who it's a struggle for me but I think the performances were great I think that the actors were so well chosen throughout the film the casting was just perfect and I and I ended up really being in love with this movie as hard as it is to watch there's not a it doesn't really let up um, but I'm gonna give it four and a half clothesline garotes garotes I've always said uh, Garrett like carrot. Is that wrong? I say garrote, but it's because I read it for the first time in the anarchist cookbook when I was 12 years old and mm. I have no idea how to pronounce things. Well, you know, I, you're just like, this I didn't isn't add the show an, for that. I didn't add an extra L to it. Right. Garrote. <laughs> well, if pronunciation was a problem during the review, I imagine it will be doubly so during the selection of a guy. <laughs> Not for me. Oh, really? Yeah, well, then well, why don't you start? Who's your guy, John? Maybe. We've talked about him already. My guy is absolutely the passport forging uh, communist print, printing print press guy. guy. Yeah. Uh, I don't even think he, I don't think he's named. Uh, you know, he's a Frenchman, not a um, an Algerian. But he is sympathetic to the cause. And clearly he's a Frenchman who made the connection between working for the resistance during the war 
and the Algerian resistance against French, French occupation. Like he is a dyed in the wool revolutionary and he sees the through line that global revolution is what he's working toward, not any one particular freedom fighter movement. But he is so, he's so confident and so just like, just so casually understands that he's on the right side of history so much so that it's almost like he feels bullets are going to bounce off of him. Yeah. And yeah. That, he does not panic when it becomes clear that he, the jig is up. No, they're waving, they're waving the evidence right in his face and he's just like, nah, you and your buns, you can take them, stick them in. He's a true believer. It's, not, it's He's like, yeah, like I will probably eventually get arrested for what I'm doing. Right. But I'm going to, I'm going to advance the cause as much as I can until that point. That's he's right. already developed a taste for Pruno. The French make fantastic Pruno. Oh, a lot I of bet. people will argue Pruno. that California Pruno is as good. They're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he, um, when the Colonel gets those passports, when they find the passports in the, in the hidden box or whatever, and he, and he waves them under his nose, the Colonel does that. I mean, it's, it's basically taken from a Rambo movie. He looks at me, he goes, nice work. You know, like these, these are beautiful. And the guy's like, yeah, I mean, there's a little like there's, there's game recognized yeah, game. Yeah. yeah. Those are the most fun parts of the film for sure. Good guy. He's my guy. John. Uh, my guy is going to be mom. Oh, mom is such a great guy. Mom is so hardcore. Mom is also a toady because uh, much like the print shop employee or the print shop owner, she knows she can talk shit without being hurt. Like she curses out the gendarme in the first scene after they're out of earshot, like yeah. <laughs> the way a toady would. And then, uh, and then after the massacre, she, she tells her boys that she's been, she's already dead. She's been dead for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and she also tells Abdul Qadr to be a man in prison. Yeah. Like, be easy, a man. easy for you to say, mom. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> that thing in her that talks a lot of shit from relative safety is is like something that <laughs> and I she, think And she's is, also dead inside and has been for a long time. I feel like those are familiar traits yeah. to a me. <laughs> uh, those are the moments when I tend to talk shit. Like with my windows rolled up after the gendarmes are yeah. back in their car. So mom's my guy. What about you, Ben? I had a hard time picking one, but, uh, I think I'm going to give it to, I think his name was Ollie. He's the first guy that joins the FLN. Oh, he's a good guy. He's a very sharp dresser. They like shake it up in the bar and they're, they get kicked out and he's, he like chases after them. And he's like, Hey, I'll, I'll join your little club. Um, he winds up betraying them in the end under presumably torture uh, in police custody, which I probably, you know, as a as an avowed coward, I would probably give everything up if I was being tortured by the police and had anything to give up. Good to know. It's it's why you don't know where the box of guns is, Ben. It's why yeah. John and I have <laughs> such long conversations after the show is over. Uh, after you've already hung up. I give you the version of my manifesto that's had a few paragraphs redacted. (laughs) What's all this black ink? (laughs) It was super solid all the way through up until then. And, uh, you know, and he's also like super solid up to the point where he is arrested. Like the police are asking him like what the hell he's doing on the train. Doesn't he know there's a curfew? And he's like, I'm Moroccan. 
you know, he he doesn't break eye contact for that bit of subterfuge. Thought that lady sitting across from him was going to get him off the hook there. What the hell, lady? Giving him eye jammies and then doing nothing? Yeah. I think maybe he had a machine gun and he left it with her. I don't know. I kept I, I kept thinking she was going to play a larger role. No. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think Ali's my guy. Talk about a group of three badasses. <clears throat> Good guys all around. <laughs> yeah. How many badasses are we going to have in the next film? Uh, only John and the 120-sided die can decide. Here we go. Here we go. Got that die out. Twenty-four. It lands on number twenty-four. Number twenty-four is exactly thirty years previous to this twenty ten movie we reviewed today. It's a nineteen eighty movie directed by Sam Fuller, set in World War Two. It is the big red one. I think it's the big red one. Mm. Not the big red one. I've got a big red one for you, Ben. <laughs> Yeah, it's hanging out of the bottom of your boxers. It's the first infantry. Mm. Oh. They have a one on their sleeve, and it's red. I thought if, like, which movie do you want to watch next week? The big red one. <laughs> no, that's Clifford, the big red dog. <laughs> hey, Lee Marvin and yeah. Mark Hamill. Holy shit. This is, the, this is a movie from that weird era, 1980. Where the real when Mark ha- Hamill was a movie star. Yeah, Mark Hamill, had, <laughs> had, uh, he was famous from Star Wars. This is when Lee Marvin was being selective with the projects he'd take. <laughs> the, uh, like the, the heyday of the World War II adventure movie starring Lee Marvin was definitely 10 to 15 years before this. So <laughs> big, big Red One is a little bit of a, I don't know, I remember it kind of being a three-wheeled cart. I love Lee Marvin. Well, I know. We all do. But Lee Marvin's like 60 by this point. And Jesus. he's had yeah, a he lot. looks like a fucking cognac dipped cigar in <laughs> he's the pictures. Had, had a lot to drink, and you know, Mark Hamill. Need I say more? Lee Marvin's got some hard bark on him. This is post uh, post motorcycle crash Hamill, so he's got believable war scars. Mm. Yep, he looks he looks a little bit different. He's not quite Luke Skywalker. This is also, uh, if I recall, like a like a, a classic World War II buddy picture. I'm looking forward to seeing Mark Hamill as the Brooklyn guy. <laughs> hey, forget about it. Hey, I'm trying to shoot these womp rats here. <laughs> well, that'll be next week. We'll leave it with Rob's from here. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Ben Harrison, John Roderick, and Adam Pranica. It's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. If you feel like supporting the show, head on over to MaximumFun.org donate. It helps us keep the lights on over here at Friendly Fire. And as an added bonus, you'll get access to our Pork Chop feed, as well as all of the other bonus content on Maximum Fun. If you'd like to share the show online, use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Adam is at CutForTime. John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks, we'll see you next week. We like the cars, the cars that go boom. 
were Tigra and Bonnie. That's just for you, Rob. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.